0: Good morning. You'll take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, Chapter 3. 2 Corinthians, Chapter 3. When the children of Israel left Egypt, They went to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law from God. And the Bible says in Exodus 34 that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone that it had upon it the glory, the look of the glory of God. And I really don't know what this means. I don't know that if it was actually radiant or that it was... Radiant and terrible in some way. I know that it probably was terrible for the people in some way because it also says that the people did not like to look at it. They didn't like to look at his face when it was shining in this way. They had a fear of it, a fear of the terrible greatness that it represented. But we know that it was the residual effect of his being in the presence of God and so when Moses would go in with God later in the tabernacle, as he'd go in with God, he would take off the veil and he would again receive that glory of God on his face. And then when he would come back out of the tabernacle, he would cover his face because, partially because the people did not want to see it and partially because it was fading. And I think he wanted the people not to see it as it faded. As he would be away from God's presence, that glory would fade from his face. In the book of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, we have the comparison of the glory of Moses as he came out of the, ta- the temple and down from the mountain, out of the tabernacle and down from the mountain, with, with the glory that Christians are supposed to move in and toward. So let's take up reading with verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, ...because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now I want us to note a couple of quick contrasts here between the Old Testament glory and New Testament glory that's written in these verses. One, the Old Testament glory was a glory that was from the ministry of death. And that is the ministry of law. the law. We understand as as we read the Scriptures that the law of God... On us brings death because of our sin. But the New Testament glory is a ministry of the Spirit. The Old Testament glory was a ministry of condemnation, but the New Testament glory was a ministry and is a ministry of righteousness. Old Testament glory was fading as Moses went in and came out from the tabernacle. The glory would fade off of his face, but the New Testament glory that is ours is supposed to remain. It's supposed to remain with us. The Old Testament glory was veiled in a couple of ways. One, that it was veiled from the people from seeing it on Moses' face. And another way is that it was veiled from them approaching God themselves and going into his presence themselves. They were restricted. But the New Testament glory is unveiled. It's unveiled. It's, it's removed. The veil is moved away. And so we can see the glory of God and we can approach God directly. The Old Testament glory fell in front of hardened minds, minds that would not see it. But the New Testament glory comes to those who have liberated souls because of the Holy Spirit and His work. Moses had a fading glory that the Israelites witnessed. Now, we all understand fading glory in some way. My wife and I were sitting at Bob Evans' restaurant in, is it called Mooresville? North of here by the airport. We were sitting in the Bob Evans' restaurant in Mooresville this past Tuesday morning, Having breakfast, it was about 8 a.m. We had dropped some friends off at the airport to go home to be with family. We sat there and we ate, and we listened to two retired men who were sitting behind me in the booth uh, at my back. And these men were sitting there and talking about the glory days of coaching junior high football. And as I listened to them, I I listened very intently because I knew what I was going to be speaking about this morning. And, of course, this was somewhat to the subject of what I was going to preach on. So I listened to them talk about this and that fifth or sixth grade football player as they're sitting there eating their breakfast. And they, they took the entire time that we were there talking about coaching junior high football. And another elderly man walked by, and they, hey, hey, how you doing? And the exchange was this. Yeah, this is so-and-so, and he used to coach girls basketball. You know, junior high girls basketball or something. And I was listening to these men, and they were talking about the glory days. They were talking about the old days. They were talking about the time back then when this This young man or this young woman was an incredible football player with all this promise and how they were there to coach them and they were there to help them. And people are like that. People often talk about their glory days, the good old days, when they played this or that sport, when they worked at this or that job, when they wore this or that dress size, when they lived in this or that house, when their kids were this or that age, We understand what it means when we talk about fading glory or even glory that is past. And if you're familiar with a song that Bruce Springsteen sings called The Glory Days, are you familiar with that song? Okay, let's try it again all at once. Okay. If you're familiar with that song that Bruce Springsteen sings, you'll think about the, the, the images and terms that he brings out in the song. And it's all about times in the past when the days were good, when I was at my prime. And then he sings the chorus, the refrain, the glory days. So he has a a high school baseball player that he sings about. And then he goes through a couple of other things, and he gets to the end, and he's singing about himself, and he's saying, you know, I'm probably going to come to the place where I'll look back. I don't want to, but then those will be my glory days, and I'll be sitting there looking back on those days. People are enamored with the past. And it's common, it's a common habit to long for the good old days. But sometimes when we hear people long for the good old days, and sometimes when we long for the good old days, we betray our own hearts. Because the truth of the matter is that people who live without Jesus Christ live only with the shadows of their glories past for comfort. That's what they have to live on. People who live without Jesus Christ live looking back at the past or trying to recapture the past because they don't see ahead of them a hope for the future. In fact, what they see ahead of them is disappointment. It's decline. It's death. And it's judgment. It's disappointment because of sin. Why are we disappointed? Why do we know we're going to be disappointed in the future? You know, it doesn't matter how many times you sing the Peter, Paul, and Mary songs that are all about peace and happy and we'll all hold hands and it'll be wonderful later on when we finally get our act together. No matter how much you sing those songs, the fact of the matter is, sin still remains and there will still be wars and oppression in this world because of it. That will not end. Until God makes an end to this world, there will be decline because of sin. No matter how many juicers you buy, how many aerobics you participate in, no matter how many uh, natural vitamins you take, your body, my body, they're going to decline. They're going to get stiffer. It's going to be harder to get up. I shoveled snow for four hours on Wednesday or Thursday. I couldn't move the next day. I was just so stiff. There there's no escaping that. And again, it's because of sin. There's going to be death because of sin. We will all die. And there will be judgment again. Judgment for sin. We'll all stand before God. Why does the non-Christian have no hope for the future? Well, it's because they have chosen this life. They've chosen to look at this life as the end of all things. They have chosen to grasp this life. And so, even in their grasping of it, they see that there is a future accounting. Even in their grasping of it, they see that there is a reality of the future. They see that there is disappointment ahead and that grasping this life won't allow them to keep life. It's interesting if you go on the Internet and read the words to the verses of that song, Glory Days, you'll find every verse that I could find on the Internet has a reference to drinking in it. And there's a reason for that. Because a song that's about grasping this life and holding on to the days of this life is a depressing song. And it's a depressing theme. And it doesn't hold out hope. And so the glory days are reminisced about, but it's a depressing reminiscence. And so we drink to forget. And we drink to, to take away the pain associated with the fact that they're not going to continue to be glory days in the future. John three seventeen to 19 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. So people who are not believing in God are looking at something, even if they try to suppress it, even if they try to forgive it, even if they try to drink themselves into not seeing it coming. The reality is they anticipate the day of reckoning when they will stand before God and and have to give an account for the fact that they suppressed the truth that they denied the light that was in Jesus Christ, and that they loved the darkness. They loved their life better than what God would give them. And so they watch fearfully as life slips through their fingers like sand, and they have despair. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus, if you've not believed literally that He came to earth for the purpose of dying and atoning for sin. This means he died to pay the penalty for someone else. To pay the penalty for someone else's sin, for yours and mine. If you have not believed that he did this, then you are in this world alone without God. And you have no hope for a future. The bright, shiny new year that you're facing isn't bright and shiny if all you have to comfort you are the past thoughts and memories and the possible few future thoughts and memories that you may have but you don't know that you will have. And I would ask you this morning, I would ask you to consider that God has done something for you by giving you Jesus Christ and giving you something that will bring you hope and glory beyond anything that you can imagine. And that He has done this and He's offering it to you to believe on Him And not only will you escape the despair of this life, but you will also escape the judgment of the time coming when God will make us all give account for our lives. So I want to invite you this morning, if you have not believed on Jesus, I want to invite you to believe on Him and ask Him to save you from your sins and repent of your sins and turn from them and follow Him. Turn away from the pseudo-comforts that you're looking at in this world and find the true source, the only source of comfort, that is in Christ. Now, as Christians, are we not supposed to remember or think fondly of the past? That's not what I'm saying. But we don't look at the past as our hope for comfort, as our guard from despair we look at the glories that are set before us and we we find comfort in these glories and if we are not looking at the comfort at the glories that are set before us then we are sinning if we are not looking at the glories that God has provided ahead of us but rather we are looking back then we are not living in obedience to God the christian is supposed to live moving forward beholding as in a mirror, seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ and being transformed from glory to glory into his image. And we have this as our constant hope. This is our driving force as we move forward, not despair. Think about the children of Israel again. I started off talking about them and Moses. Think about them as they're being led by Moses into the promised land. These people who had witnessed the shining glory of God on the face of Moses, okay? They had witnessed the plagues of Egypt. They had witnessed the parting of the sea, and they walked through it on dry ground. They had seen all of these things. Even though they had seen all of this, and God had put before them this this fantastic promise of a a land where they would live and it would be their own and that they would not be slaves and that they would have all that they needed and that it would be an abundant place flowing with milk and honey. Even though that promise was set before them. And God had demonstrated His power in bringing them to the point where they were at that time. And they had seen the glory of God on the face of Moses. Even though all all that was true, they refused to obey God. They refused to believe Him. And to acquire the promise that he had, the thing that he had promised to give to them. And they looked back to those days in the past. It says in Numbers 11, verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we. Used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and garlic, but now our appetite is gone and there is nothing at all to look at except this manna. They're going from slavery to the promised land, a land of freedom and plenty. God has protected them miraculously, He's providing them with miraculous food. And their response? The fish back in Egypt were free. We had leeks and onions and garlic. The good old days, the glory days, the past days, no hope for the future. They were faithless and unbelieving. Another character that we are instructed by in the Scripture is Lot's wife. Remember when Lot was taken from Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife and daughters? They were instructed not to look back on Sodom. And in reference to this, Luke chapter 17, verses 28 says and following says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day when that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out, and likewise the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Well, the immediate context of this is the return of Christ to this earth, but the application for us doesn't change. We don't seek to preserve this life, We give up this life in order to acquire that life which God has promised to us. And Lot's wife is that example to us to remember. Don't turn back. Don't look back. Don't look for comfort in the things that are in the past. Look ahead with hope to what God has promised to us, what's coming in days to come. We look forward to God's promise. It is our hope and comfort. Think about David in the Old Testament. Do you remember David's life? Now you may be, I don't know how old you are. The youngest person in here may be 10. And the oldest person in here may be, how old are you, Tim? You're not smiling. The oldest person in here may be 80, I don't know, or 85. Think about David and his life in the Old Testament. When he was a young man, what did he do? Trusting in God, what did David do as a young man? Do you remember? He killed what? A lion? What else did he kill? A bear? Protecting his father's sheep? And then as a young man, who did he go and fight and defeat? the Philistine giant, Goliath. And all that while, he also did something else. He wrote psalms. He wrote songs and worshipped the Lord with them, didn't he? He was a man who trusted God and he was very young. What happened to David when he was middle-aged? He messed up some, didn't he? He sinned some big sins. And the Bible records them for us. It also records his repentance and his brokenness before God over them. But he also, what else did he do? He saw Israel, trusting God, he saw Israel grow and be strong as a nation before God, as he served God. He saw the people worship God. He gathered together all of the money and the, and the uh, uh, gold and silver and the, the things to prepare for the building of the temple that his son would accomplish. He wrote psalms, didn't he? He worshipped God and he wrote psalms. When David was an old man, what did he do? Do you remember from 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2? When he was an old man and he was frail, he knew the decline of his physical body. He couldn't even keep warm. They had to get a nurse for him, and the nurse took care of him all the time. Warmed him with her body so that he could stay warm. But as he was in that state and they came to him and they said, David, who's going to be king? He said, my son Solomon will be king. I, got, I have work to do. As an old man, I have work to do. And so he installed Solomon and he gave Solomon specific instructions instructions about what he should do and how he should serve God and obey him. And he, and he referenced to Solomon that God had promised him that he would keep a descendant on his throne, on the throne of Israel. And so he trusted God and believed him. And you know what else he did as an old man? He wrote psalms, he wrote worship songs. Did you know that? Have you read Psalm 37? Can you think of the words in verse 25? I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. David looked forward to what God would do. David believed in the promise that God had for him. We just uh, celebrated yesterday. We celebrated Christmas. And we remembered the birth of our Savior. And it's a very interesting story to me when I read in Luke the account of uh, Mary and Joseph going to Jerusalem to accomplish the purification that she had to accomplish after the birth of Jesus. And they had to sacrifice the doves there in Jerusalem. And it says they went into the temple. And you remember the story of who they met there, who who approached them? A man named Simeon. He was an old man, an old prophet. And what did Simeon do? What was Simeon's tasks? What kind of things did he busy himself with there in the temple? Well, he would just go around the temple and he would tell people how... He used to pitch for the old uh, Bethany Stonecutters team. Do you remember that? Is that Is that what Simeon did? No. He looked for the consolation of Israel. He was a man looking for what God had promised. He was looking for Jesus Christ, and he watched. And he had a particular promise. He was promised by God through the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw God's promise, God's consolation to Israel. And sure enough, they came, brought Jesus to the temple, and Simeon took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, but Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was Anna, who was also in the temple, who was 84 years old, who had been widowed from her husband only after being married, I believe, seven years. And she stayed in the temple courts all the time and just prayed and fasted. She didn't stay in the temple courts and tell people how great it was back when her husband was still alive and those great days I had, those seven years I had with my husband, and that was what it was all about. And that's the only thing I have to live for. I'm not saying she never didn't remember her husband. But she looked for something. She looked for God to do something in her life. And she expected. And so she stayed in the temple and she prayed. And she fasted. And she saw Jesus Christ as a baby. Simeon and Anna looked forward to what God would do. They lived to see God's salvation. And we see many in the Old Testament who are recorded who had individual promises from God that were realized. But that an ultimate promise that God had given to them all was not yet realized in their eyes. And that was the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. And in Simeon, we have the two coming together. He had a personal promise and he had that great uh, global promise to Israel that was realized together at one time. His personal promise was that he would see the global global promise fulfilled, and so he was singular in that that regard. The life of the Christian is a life of looking forward. Paul says in Hebrews 6 that we must press on to maturity, to see the fruit that accompanies salvation, and to show diligence until the end. Reading Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And then he gives them a warning about how they should live. And he says in verse 9, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And then he talks about the promises of God that were made to Abraham. And he gets to verse 19 and he says, This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have a hope set before us as Christians, and it is this that God expects us to do. It's this that Paul was warning, in the, as he wrote the book of Hebrews, he was warning them against, against turning back. He was warning them to follow God's promise and look forward to what was promised. For those of you who are Christians this morning, what is the danger What is the concern? What's the concern I have for you? What is the concern I have for me as we read these texts? What am I warning us away from? I'm warning us away from unbelief. But specifically, an insidious unbelief that tempts us as we live in this world moving toward the next. And this unbelief comes as a result of a lack of diligence. It's a lack of diligence, a diligence that we're supposed to have toward ourselves and a diligence that we're supposed to have for one another. I talk to a lot of people uh, working in the church, not just people from our church, but people from other churches, Christians from other places, and as I talk to them, and as I engage with them about the difficulties that they're facing in life, particularly people who are uh, floundering because of something not turning out that they want the way they wanted to turn out, to turn out uh, financially or physically, or perhaps they're older and they're facing uh, the, the ravages on their body of being older. And I listen to them talk, and quite often I'll hear them give this negative type of statement. The statement of, I don't, I don't believe, or I don't, I don't see God doing this, or I, I hate this condition, I hate what I'm in. And what I hear in it is, I hear that they don't, they're not trusting God. And they're not having faith. And as I talk to them, I talk to them about what God has promised because I have a responsibility to be diligent for people who are being tempted with unbelief, and so do you. Think about Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, that there not be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. It's not just those difficult situations that people talk to us about that we need to speak to and encourage them in. It's more than that. We need to speak to them and encourage them in the idea that they would produce fruit, that they would see the power of God working in their lives. Not just what's negative to help them to stave off the negative, But are we pushing them, are we pushing ourselves to see what God would do in us because of the promises He has made to us and because of the Spirit that He's given to us? Are we seeing God's glory? Are we transformed? Are we moving from glory to glory as we serve Jesus? Do we see victory in our lives? Do we see the power of God working? Today, while it's today, are we encouraged not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? My dad had a spiritual fight before his death. When I would visit with him, he would sometimes say to me, Why am I still alive? Why doesn't God take me? And you may have sat with a friend or a relative In this situation, and you may know the feeling of hearing them say something like that. I told my dad what I believed I should say to him as a son and as a fellow believer. I said, Dad, God isn't finished with you. When He's finished with you, you'll be gone. When He's finished with you being here, you'll be gone. You've lived your life well before your children. And you've demonstrated God's glory before your children and before the people around you. But now God wants you to die well and to demonstrate his glory as you die. He wants you to die like you lived, believing in him. And that's a hard thing to say to anyone if you've never said it before. And it's really hard to say to your father, but you know... Since that time I've had a conversation with my son and I told my son that exchange with my father and I said, son, someday I may be laying in a bed looking at you and saying, why does God still have me here? What's the reason for me going on? And I may not be able to see the glory of the promise that's in front of me. I said, son, this is what I want you to say to me. And I told him, this is what I want you to say. But I don't just want him to say that then. I want him to say it now. I want my son to encourage me now to the promise of God and the glory that God has set in front of me. And I want you to encourage me now. And I'm encouraging you now that God has set before you fantastic promises in Christ. And if you feel like your life in Christ is mediocre, you are not realizing what God has placed in front of you. He has placed Fabulous Liberties And joys And hopes At your disposal And they are powerful By the power of His Spirit To be realized in your life Are we diligent in ourselves? Are we diligent toward others? What do we need to remember About God's glory What key points do we need to keep in our minds all the time? Well, from these passages I've read this morning, you may see a few and I'll I'll reiterate them to you very quickly. But there are many, many more promises and assurances of what's before us and encouragements to move forward for the Lord. The life of glory is lived with, through, and by the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand the connection you have to God's Holy Spirit as a believer? Do you understand what God has given you, who God has given you in giving you you His Spirit? And the strength you have, and the encouragement, and the comfort you have for life. The life of glory follows the promise of God. God is faithful, He is faithful to His promises. He has never failed on his promises, and he will never fail. The Christian has hope as an anchor for the soul. Do you look at your life and every, all of the circumstances that you live in, and do you just have an assurance in your life of the hope that's set before you in Christ? And that, does that just anchor you? It's like a mooring holding you. It just won't let you go. doesn't matter what happens. It's just always there. Faithful. Constant. Never changing. Do you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ? The promise from 2 Corinthians 4. That God has made His light to shine in our hearts. That we can see His glory in the face of Christ. You know, you can't see it with your eye. How do you see His glory? How is this spiritual reality of God's glory revealed in your heart as you look at Jesus Christ and as you hear the testimony of His work? We're made to ascend from glory to glory to ever increase in glory until God's glory finally consumes us and transforms us in our final state upon our deaths. That is ever before us. And guess what? On the deathbed, when we're about to breathe, the last breath we take, are our our best days yet behind us? Or are they yet before us? We don't even have a clue about the good things that are before us. We don't even start to imagine what's before us. Are you looking forward? What are you looking forward to? Are you young? Are you middle-aged? Are you old? What expectation do you have spiritually based on God's promises? What expectation do you have of God producing fruit in your life? What expectation do you have for the hope that is in front of you? What expectation of joy do you have in this life? Are you diligently running to realize the promises of God? Are you diligently encouraging others to do so also? God, help us. God, help us. We have a wonderful hope set in front of us. Let's pray.